0: so many mentors here I have so many people that I follow so many people that are lifting me up in prayer and encouragement and it's such a gift it is such a gift it is such a gift it's a dangerous prayer to pray Jesus I will follow you wherever you'll take me and I remember praying that prayer on a beach uh, down in San Diego on April 8th in the year 2000 when I came to Christ through this church as a college student Dangerous prayer, I'm telling you, if you pray that prayer, Jesus, wherever you wanna take me, I will follow. He'll take you to places that you would never dream of, on an adventure that you can never imagine for yourself, and to be used in ways that you could never wrap your mind around, and here I am, and here we are on this day, on this Independence Day weekend, and my prayer is that you would be blessed, that though physically I receive that blessing, that you would walk away from here personally, individually, knowing that you have a God that longs to reach out to you in an even more intimate way to bless you, to lift you up, to transform you. Every single one of you, you are here for a different reason, and God knows exactly where you are. We're in a series on the book of Ecclesiastes, but before we get into Ecclesiastes, we're gonna step in through the back door, as it were, through the gospel according to Matthew. This is Matthew 7, and as you just pause, as you take this moment in, as you reflect on where you're coming from, without even needing to pull out scripture, as you listen to these words, this is Matthew 7. Let's hear God's word.
1: Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. Anyone who listens to my teachings and follows it is wise like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teachings and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash."
0: This, my friends, is God's word. We're going to do a full circle, in a sense. We're starting there in Matthew. We'll come back to Matthew, but we're going to go through Ecclesiastes as well. If you have your Bibles, why don't you pull those up to Matthew or to Ecclesiastes, chapter two? Uh, the red book in front of you is a pew Bible. If you have that, or if you're in the front row, there's a cubby right behind your leg, and we're turning to page five thirty-seven. And as you turn there, I want you you leave it open. I'm going to read this for us in a moment. But before we get there, I want to remind all of us that we're in a series now called Two Truths. We live in a world where there are two truths. There's the truth of life under the sun. That's a phrase that's used over 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you haven't been with us, just as a reminder that that phrase is so key, it's so critical that if you don't understand what that phrase means, this whole book, Ecclesiastes, won't make sense. It'll leave you depressed. It'll leave you discouraged. It'll be meaningless. But this phrase, under the sun, is a perspective on life as if God didn't exist. It is all about the here and now. There's no big picture. There's no eternity. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is the only one of all the 66 books of the Bible that allows himself to go down that road as if God didn't exist. He plays the role of a skeptic. He's a spiritual searcher, and there's a truth of life that if you imagine that God doesn't exist, there's a reality for you under the sun. But as I said, there's two truths. There's also a perspective of life above the sun. Like the sun in the sky, it's a, it's a heavenly perspective. It's, it's life with God. It's a bigger picture perspective than what you just see. It, it requires faith, but it's so much greater, so much greater, and both of these truths live in harmony with one another. This past week, uh, I experienced uh, something great with 17,500 people at the Hollywood Bowl. And as I was there, as I was on my feet, as I was singing along, there were two songs in this concert that summed up the two truths that are found in Ecclesiastes. These two songs were so profound, so rich, so deep, that I'm listening to them, I'm thinking, "This this is deep theology. These two songs, one represents the under the sun perspective and the other song represents the above the sun, a with God perspective. And I'm looking around, I'm thinking this is, this is better than, than any theologian I can quote from. As I go to church on Sunday, I mean this is, this is in a sense, more profound than some of the Christian writers I've seen. And I was so moved because in that experience with 17,500 people in this packed house, sold out show at the Hollywood Bowl, I'm realizing that, that Queen are tremendous poets and theologians. How many of you were there Monday night, Hollywood Bowl? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, well, yes, yeah, so we'll get there in a moment, JT. But some, more people in the 830 service were at Queen. Come on, 11 o'clock service. <laughs> So in that moment, in that night, it was for my mom's birthday. She wanted for her birthday to go see Queen. How cool of a mom is that, right? It's her choice. So we go to see Queen, the first of two sold-out shows. And uh, it was my parents and my sister and brother-in-law and my wife who is uh, near the end of her pregnancy. She thought, you know, um, 90 degrees at 7 p.m. And, and all that walking, I'm going to stay home. And so JT, I called up JT, and I know he loves music, uh, who's up here and serves in our, in our youth ministry, came with me, and so we were there. And we'll get to the songs in a moment, but as I read Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 through 11, this is the under-the-sun perspective of life. This is life without God. We'll get to that song in a moment, but let me read for us Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I said to myself... Come now, I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But again, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, until I might see what was good for mortals to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. both men and women, and delights of the flesh, and many concubines. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had spent in doing it, and again, all was vanity in a chasing after wind, and there was nothing to be caned under the sun. This, my friends, includes the reading of God's word. I want it all, I want it all, and I want it. (laughs) Even the 8.30 was louder. Come on, people, what's going on? (laughs) I know where the real Queen fans are, I guess, on a Sunday, this song. It was written by Brian May, the guitarist of Queen. Sums up an under the sun perspective. I want it all. I want it all and I want it now. And the writer of Ecclesiastes pursues that way of life. Open those Bibles back up and look at how he says it. In verse one he says, come now I will make a test of pleasure, enjoy yourself. And that phrase there, come now, it's in the language he is changing direction. You see, he wasn't in a sense born with a silver spoon, enjoying pleasure his entire life, but he changes direction. If you are with us the last couple of weeks, we talked about in chapter one of Ecclesiastes that without God, if you pursue knowledge and if you pursue wisdom, trying to find the meaning of life without any divine knowledge, you're gonna hit a brick road, a brick wall, end of the road. And so, in a sense, he's saying, okay, I've explored what life looks like if there's no divine creator. And at the end of chapter one, he says that all of it is meaningless, that there's no purpose in life. Again, this is an under the sun perspective. This is a perspective of life if there isn't a God. And I've got friends, and I shared it with you last week, that, that truly believe that we are a cosmic accident, that they say that our origins are insignificant that this world is insignificant, that all the things that we do in life are insignificant. And all we do is that we grow to be wise enough to know how insignificant we are. I mean, it's such a depressing way to live your life. And what he's saying here is what the Western world is in the midst of. He's saying, okay, I, I've pursued trying to find meaning in life just through wisdom and through knowledge, and so therefore there's no objective truth, and now therefore I'm going to try to manufacture subjective pleasure. And this is what we're experiencing in the West. And when I say the West, I'm not just talking about the United States, I'm talking about the Western world, which, which transcends national boundaries. You see, we're the first culture in human history that is now living based upon the premise that there is no absolute or no objective answer to the question, why do we exist? If you look throughout human history, if you look throughout the cultures of the world, that the predominant view is based on either a religious viewpoint or a spiritual viewpoint, and there's this collectively agreed upon answer to why do we exist? Whether it's a Buddhist culture or Hindu, or Islam, or Judaism, or Confucianism. Whatever it might be, there's there's this agreed upon answer to the question, why do we exist, that the foundations of cultures are built upon? But we in the West right now, we've come to this place where everything's relative, where we disagree, and this was the whole sermon last week, you can go online, you can listen to it, where we disagree on the answer to the question, why do we exist, and so therefore, because it's so subjective, because we're not living for something, anything bigger than ourselves, every single one of us is pursuing in the West. Again, this is a, an apart from God point of view. We're pursuing subjectively how we believe we're gonna find meaning in life. And that's exactly what the writer of Ecclesiastes was doing. Look, he says, not just come now, I will make a test of pleasure, enjoy yourself. But he goes on to verse three, and says, I search with my mind how to cheer my body with wine, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on falling until I might see what was good for mortals to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And he pursues this, I want it all, I want it all now kind of life. And here's the fascinating thing, that he's not just looking for objects of pleasure. And this is such a, a good commentary on our world today. He's not looking for pleasure, for pleasure's sake. He's looking at pursuing pleasure and things to give him joy and and laughter and goodness. He's pursuing those things to give his life meaning. You see, we live in a world right now where you don't buy things just for the sake of the things. We are way past that. Think about your car. Think about the last time you saw a commercial. The car driving down the road. Nice time of day, and at the end, the tagline says, gets you from point A to point B. I mean, can you remember the last time that commercial, no? We've moved past that, but if you were to go back at the invention of the automobile, that was enough to sell a car, where people who have never experienced that before saw an automobile for the first time, and someone says, look, it will get you from point A to point B. And you don't have to walk. You don't have to break a sweat. People were showing up in droves to buy those cars. But we've moved past that. And so now, you know those car commercials where they promise you the ultimate driving. We know this. We're steeped in this. You see, we live in a world, and this is the point that he's making. He's looking for pleasure, he's looking for things, he's looking for experiences that will give his life meaning. Again, this is an under the sun view. If there is God, if there is no meaning, then I'm gonna try to do these things, experience these things, have these things in order to experience what it's like to mean something, to have a substantive life. And so actually, as a culture, what we do, we do this really well, we're so subtle about it, and we don't think we do it, but we use people for experiences. We, we use things in order to feel meaningful. We buy shoes because we feel like that's gonna give us an identity. And no longer are cars about cars, or shoes about shoes, or sex about sex. You know, animals have sex. But we want more than just sex. We want an out-of-body experience. We want it to be better and better and better. And we go on vacations and we do those things because we want something so much greater than just that thing. And in the end, if you've ever experienced this, you, 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 you just keep singing that song, I want it all and I want it all and I want it now. And I want more and I want more and I want more. It's so fascinating, scientists have actually done studies that the part of your brain, the hypothalamus, that actually triggers when you take a substance like alcohol or drugs or anything in that, in that realm, that the part of the brain that fires, ready for this? The same part of the brain fires when you click on buy now. <laughs> Did you know that? There's something about our human bio- biology that we want more. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes says is something that none of you can say. Take a look at verse 10, open those Bibles back up. What does he say in verse 10? After this long laundry list of all these things and experiences and possessions, in verse 10 he says, whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. What he's saying is what none of you can say. He says that everything in my life that I wanted, I got. That there was nothing left over. There was no more wish lists. There was no more bucket lists. He had the ability, at the time, the richest person in the world with tremendous power, tremendous influence, was actually able to get to the, the end of the road that so many of us caught up in consumerism are aiming toward. And yet we are limited by our bank account. We're limited by our time. We're limited by our health. We're limited by our relationships that we're committed to. And he says, I'm going to take away all restrictions. And I'm going to have all these concubines. I'm going to have slaves. I'm going to use people for for my pleasure. I'm going to be the center of the universe. And he got to the very end of it. And what does he say in verse 11? He says, it's like a chasing after the winds. And he experienced what I've read about so many people experience when they accumulate all these things, if they don't have a relationship with God, if they're not living for something so much greater, if they actually believe that they're a cosmic accident yet they get all these things and have the fame and the notoriety and all these things, at the end of their life they realize that they've got nothing because they're the same person. They just have nicer clothes. They're the same person when their head hits the pillow. It's just a more expensive pillow. They're the same person with the same fears, with the same doubts, with the same insecurities. They just drive a nicer car. And you see, it's not about the accumulation of things or experiences that is evil, but it's when you think that you will find in those things the weight of the foundation to rest your soul. You see, your soul, your existence, how God created you is so weighty. In fact, the word for glory In the Hebrew language, the language of the Old Testament literally means heaviness or weightiness. And so we're trying to put our weight of our existence on all of these things and all of our relationships and we keep singing. Like, Queen, I want it all, I want it now. And there was 17,500 people just screaming this at the top of their lungs. It's the anthem for the Western world. It's an anthem for under the sun living. But thank the Lord, Queen's got more hits. And there was a second song that, that really is truly this above the sun perspective. You know, and Adam Lambert was singing. Uh, how many of you show fans know who Adam Lambert is? Many of us do. And how many Queen fans, or at least you know of Queen here? Okay, still more than 8 830. I don't know what's going on here. And so Adam Lambert gets up and he, you know, he plays the role of Freddie Mercury. And even after the second song, he says, look, I'm, I'm no Freddie Mercury. In fact, I'm just a fan like you are. And I get to do this and it was towards the end of the concert, and you know the bowl, how beautiful it is, and it was at night, and it was just this gorgeous moment with my family and JT, which was great, sitting right next to me, (laughs) it was 90 degrees, and and, uh, we had just stopped sweating at that point, and um, there's this moment where Adam Lambert says, can somebody, it was just like that, because he launches into this and it's this call and response. And then he does it again, he says, can somebody. You, you me sing it? You mean me, sing it? You me sing it? I thought about it on the 8th and I just jumped into it where he's like, can somebody, somebody, somebody. Can anybody find me? Somebody to love. And in that moment, don't get distracted by my terrible singing. Which, by the way, when you're singing along with Adam Lambert and 17,500 other people, you think you sound amazing in this moment. I'm looking back, I didn't rehearse this at all uh, beforehand, but I did that at 8.30, I'm like, Don't miss the point, don't miss the point, don't miss the point. He's singing, he's singing, he's singing, he's singing, and he's asking a question. Can somebody, can somebody, can anybody find me somebody to love? And if if you think about that lyric from just an under the sun perspective, If you think that those two songs are kind of with the same viewpoint of the world, then you you might mistakenly think that he's just looking for somebody to love him or to love you. But what's amazing, look up those lyrics later, that song is a prayer. And there's a lyric in that song that says, I get down on my knees and I pray, you know that moment? Oh Lord, it's a prayer. And I'm hearing this massive crowd singing this song, singing a prayer. Can somebody, can somebody, can anybody find me somebody to love? And what I thought was so profound about that moment, I, I've often heard and I've also often given the message of you know, it's, it's better to give rather than get. We know that message, right? And yet we so often get back into this, I want it all and I want it now kind of view. And what was so great about that prayer is that there's this realization, and this is what I want you to hear, There's an acknowledgement, there's a realization. Freddie Mercury was a brilliant poet when he says this, I need help finding people to love. I don't have within myself the ability to love to the extent that I can. And I want you to think about this in your own life. I'm guessing that if you are like me, it's much easier to love people that are already loving you it's much easier to love people that are lovable. It's much easier to love people that are like you. It's much easier to love people that actually, if you love them, that you'll actually get a leg up in this world. It's much easier to love people where there's like a benefit that'll advance your career. It'll make you feel good about yourself. How good are you at loving people that hate you? How good are you at loving people that, you, that vote completely differently than you? I mean, do you have this intentional capacity to pursue people that are absolutely unlikely. No, you don't, and you need help. And that's the beauty of not only that psalm, but that's the beauty of this above the sun perspective because it says that the core foundation of who we are are people created in the image of God that need something that can bear the weight of their soul and that can only be found in a loving relationship. And when I think about that prayer, Can somebody, can anybody find me somebody to love? I I think of how Jesus summed up the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures, the whole of all the commandments, and he says this, to love your God with everything you've got and to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know what Jesus does for you? He is the somebody. You know who the Holy Spirit is? The Holy Spirit is a somebody. You know who God the Father is? A somebody, this community of one. It, it's, it's almost impossible to wrap human language around the, the community of the triune God, but, but God is that somebody who shows you alone who is worthy to be loved, and that's God's self. In Psalm 27, 4, it says this, my heart's one desire, the only thing on my mind is to love God, to pursue him, to to seek God's face. You see, we live in a world that if you focus on an under the sun perspective, ultimately you're gonna hit a brick road. Your life is gonna become a cul-de-sac. You are the center of the universe. All these things are just for you. But if you live with this perspective that God actually invites you into a loving relationship and it begins with returning back the love that God has for you. First John 4 says this, we love because God first loved us. That actually if we turn our hearts and our minds and our, and our thoughts on God, who alone can satisfy us, who alone can give us joy, who alone knows us so well, better than we know ourselves, that even when we make a mistake, he says, I I still love you, I adore you, I'm pursuing you. And here's the amazing thing, when Jesus says not just to love your God with everything, but to love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus talks about your neighbor, it's not just your neighbor in the neighborhood, just like you, it's the person that is dramatically different than you. And what this world needs are people who actually live out this great and glorious truth, that are literally waking up every day praying, like Freddie Mercury prayed in that song, not just somebody, not just anybody, but God, would you find me somebody to love? You see, that's the only thing worth pursuing. It's not a cul-de-sac life, it's a thoroughfare kind of life. Whereas you pursue this loving relationship with your creator who loves you and adores you that you would actually allow that love to flow through you to people in your life that you would wake up every day and say, God, find me somebody to love at work. Find me somebody to love at the grocery store. Find me somebody to love at the DMV. Find me somebody to love on vacation. Find me somebody to love at church. Find me somebody to love at my family reunion. Imagine if you were to wake up every single day praying that pray, for God, find me somebody to love and to love them the way that God defines love—a sacrificial love, a grace-filled love, a courageous love, a forgiving love—and that brings us full circle back to Matthew seven. Open those Bibles one last time. The passage that was beautifully read for us in the beginning. Began in verse 12, you know the golden rule. Again, this is an above the sun perspective. It's the complete opposite of I want it all, I want it all now. It's this, and everything do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. But then it goes on to this, and I never used to understand what this meant. Verse 13, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction There are many who take it, for the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life and there are few who find it. I never used to know what that meant. You know, as a kid, I'd go to church every once in a while and I used to think, okay, I guess it's the straight and narrow life. And so I used to think about this in religious terms, that what I needed to pursue was doing the right thing. And I want you to follow me in this imagery for a moment, but I used to imagine as a kid when I'd very rarely go to church, I used to think that, okay, if I did the right thing, if I loved the right people, if I, if I sacrificed and showed up to church and I prayed enough, then I would kind of like live this narrow life that then one day I'd finally, I'd finally be the pearly gates. I was good enough. I could get in. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. You see, also in scripture, Jesus says about himself, he says, I'm the gate, all who enter through me will be saved. And I don't have time to unpack the fullness of this, but if you want to live a life of meaning, if you actually want to be a person that not only experiences joy and goodness in your own life, but if you wanna be an instrument through which that God would use you in powerful ways in your family, in the neighborhoods, in the city, and in this world, there's a very, very narrow pathway that you've gotta enter in through to make a real, lasting, eternal impact. And it's not a physical gate. It's not a what, it's a who. It's Jesus Christ. You see, if you wanna truly love God, God says, you just simply have to love me in return. And how does God love us? Scripture says in Romans, it says that while we were still sinners, to sin means you're aiming at the wrong thing. You're living out of alignment with how you were created to live. Scripture says that while we were still sinners, in the midst of our mistakes, in the midst of our bad choices, in the midst of going the wrong way, in the midst of saying, I want it all, I want it all now. Now. Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love in that way. That he made it possible for us to enter into this saving, deep, meaningful, glorious relationship with God. Not just you would experience that for yourself, but then you would be sent out to be an instrument through which the world would know. Where true hope is found, true joy is found, true love is found. And so now, when I picture this passage of entering through the narrow gate, it's simply coming with empty hands of faith, saying, Jesus, I need you, I want you. And in that instant, you are now on the inside. You are part of the kingdom of God. You're part of God's family. And then the rest of your life is is meant to be exploring, adventuring, with Jesus, this great and glorious life of loving others as yourself. There's so much joy, there's so much excitement to wake up every day and to say, Jesus, find me somebody to love. That's a dangerous prayer. God's gonna bring people into your life that will make you uncomfortable and that's one of the best things for you. God's gonna bring people in your life that, that talk, act, vote, sound, smell different than you. You need that in your life, I need that in my life. It takes a lot of trust to say I need help. Freddie Mercury got it right when he penned that song. I get down on my knees and pray. Oh Lord, find me somebody to love. Let's pray. Loving God, as we turn to you with our voices in worship, which simply is an act of love to you, I acknowledge that I need help in worshiping you. I get distracted, I get self-focused. And God, I pray that your spirit would be the one that would help me focus on you, to love you in this moment. So God, I pray that every single one of us right now would put this truth into practice. That as we worship you, we would also be praying, Holy Spirit, help me to focus, to open up my heart and my mind, to think about these words, to mean these words, and to long to have our hearts and our minds expanded with how great and glorious and beautiful you are. In Jesus' name I pray and we say together.